Well, I hope that you're as blessed by the music as I was sitting here in the sanctuary just enjoying it. I hope that you were able to take it in there at home. Good morning to all of you. We're going to be in Psalm 71 this morning. We're just continuing on doing songs for summer. That's what it's about. And hoping that in these songs that your spirit is lifted up. I've entitled this sermon today, A Lifelong Faith. This is a psalm of lament. So it's going to sound familiar. We've been going through some of these. But the thing that marks this psalm out is a little bit different maybe than the other laments is he's speaking, David, is speaking from the perspective of an older gentleman who has lived a life of difficulty. He's lived a life of faith and he's learned to trust in his God. So he's saying if God was there for me, he can be there for you in this journey of faith in your life. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 71. Some things to point out about the psalm that make it also unique is there's some common words and phrases that we see in this psalm that we saw last week in Psalm 70 and that we saw the week before in Psalm 69. One of the themes and the words that will appear in this one is shame, dishonor, speaking of his enemy. And he wishes that God would send shame and dishonor to his enemy. So there's gonna, it's going to sound familiar uh, over the last two weeks. There's also the pleas to God. Come quickly, God. We saw that last week when Pastor Phil preached on Psalm 70. Come quickly, God. Don't delay. I need you now. There's also a lack of heading or superscription. If you look at, in your Bible at Psalm 71, usually there's a little note at the top as to who it's written by maybe or something about the psalm and Psalm 70 is different in that there's nothing there. There is at the beginning of Psalm 70 and so a lot of the older manuscripts actually combine the two into one and they would be read together, Psalm 70 and Psalm 71. So those are just a couple things to consider about this great chapter. Let's read the first four verses together. We're gonna see there this prayer of confidence that David has. He says, in you, Lord, I've taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. There's two places where David gets his confidence from. The first one is God's name. He says, in you, Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. When we see that in our Bibles, that means Yahweh. That's the translation there. This is the covenant God. This is the personal name that God gave to his people Israel. He's a promise keeper. He's never failed in the past, David says. He's not gonna fail, so I'm gonna trust him. That's where my confidence is. I know who he is. He's Yahweh. But then in verse two, it's God's character. In your righteousness, God. God is gonna act rightly towards us. He's gonna act holy. He's gonna act justly towards us. We can bank on that. And David says, I know who you are, God, 
So what I'm asking here is that you simply be who you already are. I'm gonna trust in your name, Yahweh. I'm gonna trust in your righteous character. And then he says, last part of verse one, let me never be put to shame. This is gonna be bookends to this chapter. He's gonna start out saying, never let me be put to shame. Then in the middle, in verse 13, he's gonna say, Lord, would you please bring shame upon those who wanna shame me? Then at the end, the last verse of this chapter, he's gonna say, it's happened. Shame has been put on my enemies. And so we have kind of bookends, this idea of being put to shame. And again, in a shame and honor culture that David was writing, this is their greatest fear, is being dishonored or shamed. And that was in his mind here. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ do not have to be shamed. We are not shamed, Paul says. Now, I looked up the word shame in the dictionary, and there's three definitions. I want to look at these real briefly. The first one was, shame is a sensation brought about by guilt. Because of the fact we're in Christ, because of the gospel, our sins have been dealt with. There is no guilt. We are righteous. We are declared innocent in the courtroom of God. So we know that guilt has been dealt with as believers, so we don't have to feel that shame and that guilt because of the work of Christ on our behalf. A second part of the definition is something done that injures reputation. In Christ, our reputation with God is we are holy, we are righteous, we are blameless, we are loved, that's our reputation. There's no damage done to that in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. The third part of the definition is that which nature or modesty prompts us to conceal. conceal. I think of that verse in Genesis 2, the very last verse in that chapter. It says they were both naked and they were ashamed. With the gospel, with our understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus, we do not have to be ashamed. In fact, the opposite is true. We are told to declare it. We are told to speak it. Get it out there. Talk about it boldly. That's what we're told to do. So shame is not a part of who we are as Christians. In verse two, there's four requests that David asks of the Lord. The first one, he says, Lord, would you please rescue me? That word is, deals with snatching prey out of the claws or mouth of a foe. We were at Cape Lookout last weekend, some of us for that, the campout. And one of the beautiful things about Cape Lookout is there are some bald eagles that make their residence there. So the first morning I was there, I was just walking down the road and right above my head came two bald eagles flying right above me. And I just stood there and kind of in amazement looked at these beautiful creatures. And I went back to my camp and there was a group of people there and I mentioned it to one of the ladies um, Caitlin Pites is her name. Some of you know the Pites family. And I mentioned the eagles, and she said earlier this summer that her and her husband were camping up on Mount Hood at Timothy Lake. And she said what was amazing to us is all of the bald eagles that were up there. And she says what was happening is the ospreys, which are beautiful birds, they would go dive into the lake, get a fish, come out of the water, and then these bald eagles would race over and snatch the prey out of their mouth. And she said it was this most amazing thing to watch. 
this idea of snatching out of the mouth, not to destroy, as the eagles, to eat the fish, but to protect and to save. Now, verse four tells us what the mouths or what the claws are. It says, the hand and the grasp of the wicked. David says, I'm in their grasp, God. Would you please save me out of that? Then he says, deliver me. The word there is being brought out to a place of safety. In the Israeli mind, and I know in David's mind, that word had at, in the background, the backdrop of the Exodus, this idea of being brought out of Egypt to a place of safety, which is the promised land. That's what the word deliver meant to them. David is saying, would you please do that in my life, God? Would you please draw me out, bring me out to a place that is safe? And then he speaks in verse three of this rock of refuge, this place where he can go, this fortress. Be my rock of refuge, God. I know I can continually go there. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Not only will you draw me out, but there's a place of safety there, God. Rescue me, deliver me, turn your ear to me. God, I just need to know you're listening. One of the things I do when I meet with couples when they're preparing to get married is I ask them, what is it about the other person that drew you to them? What are some things that you remember early on in your relationship that you really love about that person? And I was meeting with a couple, Sam and Kyla are their names, and Kyla shared a story early on in their relationship. They knew each other from junior high all the way through. And she said, we were returning home from a soccer game. We're, we're on the bus. It was getting dark at night. And you know on buses where you're all sitting around talking and everybody's you're in the seats. And she said, there was a time I was sharing something that was really important to me. And everybody had kind of leaned in and was listening. And then something drew their attention away. And so they all kind of turned away and weren't listening anymore. And she kind of continued to talk and then realized nobody's listening to me. And then she heard this voice, she said, from across the aisle saying, I'm, I still lis- I'm still listening. And it was from Sam. And she said that in that moment, that meant a lot to me. The fact that he was still clued into what she had to say. David saying to God, God, please don't turn away from me. I need you to listen. There's some things I need you to hear. And then finally, the fourth one, save me. Spare my life. Bring judgment and punishment upon my enemies, God. He's speaking in the physical sense here. His life is in danger. God, would you please save me? In verses five to 18, we have David's affirmation of confidence. I wanna read these verses. It says, for you have been my hope. Sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I've relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. David says right at the beginning there, verse 14, he says, as for me, excuse me, he says, you have been. I've put my hope in you in the past, God, and you've been there. He's speaking from experience. He's speaking from confidence. And he calls him sovereign Lord. And it's a beautiful term there, this sovereign Lord. It's used 288 times 
in the Old Testament. It appears twice in this chapter. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign. Adonai. You are master. You are sovereign. You're in control. Adonai. Lord. All caps. That's Yahweh again. Sovereign Lord. And it's a beautiful, you're, you're over all things. You are a promise keeper. What you say will always be true. And then he says in verse 5, he says, Since my youth, from birth, this has been a thing for all my life. I've known you, God. I've seen you work. I know you're faithful. I can testify to that fact. I'm not just speaking theological truths. I'm speaking from life experience. Even from birth, that the word there and the wording there literally means from the inward parts of my mother, you were the one cutting me loose. It's like God is the midwife cutting the umbilical cord. It's this beautiful picture. He was there in the womb. He was there at the moment cutting the umbilical cord, cutting me loose into life. As a dad, I remember years ago being in the, the delivery room with Patty, back when you could do that sort of thing, um, and being there, and I remember they, would hand me, they handed me this pair of scissors and, they, and when Katie was born, and they said, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? Quite honestly, it was the furthest thing from my mind, and I declined the offer. I couldn't do it. I just, it was, I just, I'm squeamish about that sort of thing. To me, it didn't sound like a great idea. I said, you're the professional, I'll leave that up to you. But I thought, what a beautiful way to, to say, hey, I'm a part of this, and to bring them into the world, but I missed out on that one. But I was always a little squeamish, but there, God, you've been there from birth. I'm gonna ever praise you. It's the same word as in verse three. God, you've always been this place of refuge for me in verse three. Here it's, I'm always gonna praise you. It's gonna be a continual thing throughout my life. And then verse seven, he says, I'm assigned to many. And there's, the commentaries didn't kind of know where to go with this one. Some of the commentaries said it's kind of like I'm an omen or a portent or an indication of God's judgment, meaning maybe his enemies were looking on and seeing his struggles and going, that's God's judgment in your life, David. You deserve it. Maybe it's that. Or maybe others were looking on, and the other meaning for that word is marvel or miracle. The word can be translated either direction there. And so maybe... Other people are looking on and going, they're amazed. They're marveling at how David is going through this season of distress and still praising God in the middle of it. It can go either way. But either way, David's life is a testimony of faithfulness in the midst of the struggle. And I love verse eight. My mouth will be filled with your praise. Charles Spurgeon said, God's bread is always in our mouths. So should his praise be. He fills us up with good. Let us be also filled with gratitude. Isn't that beautiful? God's gifts are in my mouth already, so I'm just gonna express that to him in praise. So there's this affirmation of confidence. Then there's a prayer in old age, verses nine to 13. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone, David says. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. 
pursue him, seize him, for no one's gonna rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. That's what we heard last week in Psalm 70. May, your, may my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. There's this prayer. Now that I'm old, <laughs> God, help. Now that I'm older, I need you more than ever. And there's this fear that he expresses that God will in some way abandon him in his old age. It's not just fearing loss, maybe a physical and mental strength, although that's probably occurring with David, but it's spiritual strength that the Lord would somehow leave him. You know, not every believer grows stronger in their faith as they get older. Hopefully they do, and that's the goal, is to grow as we get older, but the reality is not everybody experiences that in their life. Some fall away, we know that. Some maybe go through seasons where they just lose sight of God. Solomon is a prime example. He started out in his youth saying, God, give me wisdom. I need to govern this people, fully relying on God. Then it says his heart was turned away from God and he married foreign wives and he got caught up in idolatry in his old age. And so you have the book of uh, Ecclesiastes as an older Solomon writing about his life and how he stepped away from God and the lessons that he learned in that process. So David says, God, please be with me in my old age. And then he speaks about his enemies attacking. They speak against me. There's this conspiracy. They're all gathering together. They want to take my life, God. I'm in danger here. Would you please be near, God? Would you please come now? It's like delayed help is no help at all. God, I need you. And then, verse 13, he prays, God, would you please send shame, scorn, and disgrace on my enemies? Let me not be ashamed, but God, would you please, this is kind of that imprecatory that we talked about a couple weeks ago, would you please bring that upon my enemies? So he's praying in old age, but there's hope in old age. Verse 14 on. It says, as for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. There's so many of them, I don't even know how to begin, God. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will pro proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds, even when I'm old and gray. Do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. As for me, he said in verse 14, I always have hope. In response to his lament, he goes back to the certainty, his hope. His hope in his sovereign Lord. His hope in a God who acts righteously that he talked about in the first couple verses there. It's a note to make here is that even when things aren't going our way, and that is a lot of our life, is it not? 
more recently than not, but it seems like nothing is going our way right now, we can still worship God and our faith can still grow. Just because we're struggling, just because things aren't working out the way we want, doesn't mean it has to cut off our worship. It doesn't mean we can't grow in this time. In fact, I would say we can grow even more in these difficult times if we allow the Lord to work with us. Romans 4, verse 19 to 20. This is Abraham and his testimony. And Paul speaks of it in Romans 4. He says, without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. He realized, physically speaking, it was an impossibility. He came to terms with that. He knew that. But it says he didn't waver in his unbelief. He grew in his faith, and he continued to praise God even in those years between when God promised a son and when a son was born. That was a huge gap there in his and Sarah's life. And they had to trust God, but they continued to worship knowing who God was, and they continued to grow unwavering in their faith. And I want to encourage you in this season of struggle, and we're all in it, and we're frustrated, and we're worn out, continue to worship. Continue to focus on God. Go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms. Continue to worship. Continue to grow in your faith. God's with you. He really is. He hasn't left. He hasn't left the building. He's here. So there's this beautiful prayer that he has and this hope that he has in the old age. It's interesting, verses 14 to 18 are the same pattern that we saw in verses five through nine earlier. There's the word of hope. In verse five, David said, you have been my hope. He says the same thing in verse 14. That's who I know you to be, God. Then the next thing is there's this promise that they're gonna praise God. And that same word, sovereign Lord, Verse 5 and verse 16. That's who he's trusting in. Then there's a mention of his youth. You were there then, God. I saw you work in my life when I was a youth, when I was born. The same thing here. This day-to-day walking with God. I know who you were back then when I was younger. And I know you're the same God now. You haven't changed. And then there's the concluding prayer not to forsake him in his old age. Verses 9 and verses 18. It's the same thing. Now there's the what. What does David want to talk about in these verses? Verses 14 to 18. There's two key terms that appear several times in these verses. The first one is righteous deeds. Appears three times. God, I want to talk about your righteous deeds. The second one is your saving or your mighty acts. Again, that appears three times in these verses. God, I just want to talk about the way that you respond to us, your righteousness. And I wanna talk about the manner in which you do it, these mighty saving acts that you do on our behalf. Isn't that a great place to start? Talking about worshiping God is realizing how he acts on our behalf and what he has done for us through the years. It's just this beautiful way to go back and think about those things. There's the what, then there's the how. How is he he gonna talk about these things? Well. He uses words like, I'm gonna praise you, I'm gonna tell everyone about you, I'm gonna proclaim you, I'm gonna declare you. How's that? 
it's gonna be out there. I'm just gonna be constantly telling about you. But then in verse 18, and this is a significant verse, it's the why. We have the what, we have the how, but why? Look at verse 18. It says, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. This idea that he desires to impact the next generation. It's not just about getting out of trouble now for David. It's about what God wants to do for the people coming down the road. He's looking not just in his present situation, but he's looking into the future. And he's looking outside of himself to those around him. God, if there's any way that I can speak of and pass on your glory, your fame to the next generation, I want to be all over that. I want to be a part of that. I want to leave a godly legacy. And for you and me, those of us that are older, that should be our heart cry. That should be our right down in the middle of our heart. We should be desiring to pass this on. We've been blessed from our youth, from the day we were born. I look at my life and I realize I was surrounded in my life by people that love God. I, I was raised in a church where the gospel was preached, where people trained me. What a blessing, okay? And that's wonderful, but what can I do now that I'm old and gray? What can I do then to pass this on? That's what we need to be about. That's our, the legacy that's there. You know, another thing to think about, and I just want to put this out there for you that are older, like me. <laughs> I'm putting myself in the older category now. I used to be in the younger, now I'm in the older. Think about retirement. That's kind of a modern idea, to be honest. It's kind of a first world idea, too, a little bit. The fact that we have enough money and that we're living long enough now to actually retire before we die. But oftentimes we think of retirement in the sense of what I can do for myself, what I can do to enjoy life, and that's great. In retirement, when I retire, I wanna do some fun things. I wanna travel, I wanna see some things. But I wanna broaden your scope a little bit and think in terms of now that you have this time, what can I be doing for others? What can I be doing for the future generation? Because that puts retirement in a whole different category. And I know some of you that are retired in our congregation are doing this. You're a model of this. It's not just about what can I do for me. It's about now that I have this time, I'm available, I can help others. I can pass on a legacy of the gospel into the lives of other people. So think of it in that terms. That's what David is saying he wants to do now that he's old. Verses 19 to 21, there's this affirmation of confidence. He's just gonna break out in this spontaneous praise. He says, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things. Who is like you, God? Who is like you? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor, and you will comfort me once more. I just love this idea. The psalmist sees the glory and the righteousness of God is in his mind in this picture of it's just reaching the heavens. 
There was that beautiful verse back, I preached it a couple summers ago, in Psalm 36, verse five. It says, your love, O God, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. And we sang that song that's based upon that verse. It's just this spontaneous praise of who God is. I'm just blown away by you, God, because you're beyond anything that I can imagine. It's to the skies. Who is like you? It's kind of... It's a total rhetorical question. The reality is no one. No one's like God, of course. We know that. But it's good to be reminded of that, isn't it? But then in verse 20, he goes back to his condition. God, you have made me see troubles. I love that. God, you haven't been absent during those times. In fact, you've had a part in it. You've made me see those troubles. Other people see those troubles as a bad thing, David says, I've chose to see those troubles as a good thing. I've chose to see them as your hand in my life, God. And they've been hard. They've been bitter. They've torn me up inside, but I trust you in all of those things. And then he mentions this idea of bringing me up. Now, when we read that, this idea of coming up out of the depths of the earth, in New Testament, in our times, we think of the resurrection, And what David was talking about was the brink of death. He knows that I'm on the brink, God, physically here. I need you to save me from that. So there's not a full understanding maybe right here, but there's the foundation that's laid for later on. The son of David and his resurrection from the dead and the truth of the gospel for you and me. It's there. Romans 8 verses 11 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the power of the resurrection life. This is the reality of the gospel. We have an empty tomb. We have a risen Savior. We have the Holy Spirit living in our lives, giving us power over anything, including death. That's the resurrection life. That's the gospel reality that we can live in. And it's mentioned here. The foundation is laid. There's a reference to it that we can bank on now. And then verses 20, 21, there's just these words, these verbs of comfort. Lord, you've restored my life. You bring me up. You increase my honor. You comfort me. He's just constantly looking to God in the season of trouble This is who you are, this is what you've done, God, and I'm comforted knowing these things. Because he knows God will answer his prayer, he can give thanks with full confidence, and that's how he ends the chapter, and that's how lament psalms end, always, with praise. Here here it is. It says, I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have delivered. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. In this section, his name is cleared, his faith is confirmed. This old man now can be at rest, praising God with his fingers, with his lips, with his life before God. And I love he mentions the harp and the lyre. Harp is the large stringed instrument that's beautiful, and you've probably seen pictures. I love the fact that my granddaughter, Amy and Caleb, chose to name her Harper, 
player of the harp because they love music, because they know that in music you can worship God. You can bring glory to him through music. So harper. And then they chose Elaine as a middle name. What is Elaine? Elaine is Greek word which means you are a shining light. Someone who has music in their life can bring a shining light out of that. I love Harper Elaine. It's a beautiful testimony to who she will be in her life. This harp, this idea, this beautiful instrument. And then there's the lyre. Now, there's a picture that I found online. And in Psalm 92, it speaks of the ten-stringed lyre, David says. I'm gonna play this for you, God. I love this picture because it has the Star of David on there, and it has 10 strings, and it's just a beautiful instrument. And this is what all of them look like, whether they have 10, some of them have more than 10 strings, but they all look this way. They have the two arms with the top bar going across. And they're a smaller version of the harp. They'd be more similar to our guitar, something like that. But from the word lyre, we get the word lyrics. This idea that we can make beautiful words to go along with the melody, to bring praise to God. David says, I'm gonna play music to you, God. I'm gonna write beautiful words, lyrics, that bring honor and praise to you. There's a progression in verse 22. He says, with the harp, I'm gonna praise you, my God. With the lyre, I'm gonna praise the Holy One of Israel. It goes from my God to our God. This Holy One of Israel, It's uncommon outside the book of Isaiah where it's used 25 times. That was a name that Isaiah used. But outside of the book, it's only used a couple of times. Kidner, his commentary says, God as one in which unapproachable light and covenant love meet together. You're holy, but you're also the one of Israel. Unapproachable light and covenant love together. That's who God is here. The psalm ends as it began. Lord, don't let me be ashamed, verse one. Verse 13, Lord, bring bring this shame and scorn upon my enemies. And then, for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. It's happened, God. I've trusted you through that process. So it ends how it began. I wanna conclude with some thoughts. Written from the perspective of an old man, this chapter, There's something in this psalm really for all ages. So here's some concluding thoughts. For us, I'm putting myself in the camp of older saints. For us older, I hope that you see some encouragement that God is gonna be with you through the process, the lifelong faith. You know, as we get older, what do we tend to think about as we get older? We tend to think about things like diminished power and capacity to do the things that we love, You know, I used to love just to go out and run. Guess what? I don't love to just go out and run anymore. You would have to hold a a gun at my head to get me to go out and just run for fun. It's different now. I feel it, right? We talk about a sense of vulnerability. There's a loss of independence. There's greater reliance on others. That's a struggle as you get older. It's not easy. There's confusion. There's a sense of being out of place. Do you feel that? As an old, I do. I used to feel right at peace here in this culture. Now I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't get it anymore. I need some help here, right? 
And those of us that are older understand that there's all these rapid changes. There's death of loved ones. There's loss of our familiar routines. There's all these things that we struggle. But in spite of all these things, we can remember God's faithfulness throughout our lives. And one thing I want to say about senior saints here at CBC, there's two important things to know about us. Number one, older people are to be prized. They're valued in God's eyes. They have wisdom to share. There's stories that they can tell of God's faithfulness throughout the years. Isn't that wonderful? They're prized here at CBC. But they're also mobilized. By that I mean those of us that are older, we still have spiritual gifts. We still have God's call on our life to leave a legacy. Like David says, I want to talk about God for the younger generation, for those that are coming after me. I want to leave a legacy. I want to talk to them. I want to make sure that they understand how great God is and that they have all the tools they need to serve God faithfully in the years ahead. That's the calling on our lives as older saints here at CBC. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're done. In fact, there's a continued ministry for all of us. We're prized and we're to be mobilized here. For younger saints, I want to say this to those of you that are younger. We need your energy. We need your vitality. We need your new ideas. We need you to help us cultivate, we need you to help us navigate this crazy culture that we find ourselves in. We need you now more than ever. We need your gifting. Please be a part of us. For those of you that are younger, I want to encourage you to soak in these days when you're young. Pull up alongside those that are older, and that includes your parents. You know, Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, he says, your sincere faith which existed in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. It was there, Timothy. You benefited greatly from it. Those two women were huge in your life, Timothy, but then Paul came along, Silas, and others that were a part of his life too. I wanna encourage you that are young to soak it in. Take advantage of this time in your life. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Ecclesiastes 12, 11. That's the old Solomon talking about reminding the younger people, don't forget God. Because what happens often is once you graduate from high school, we know the statistics are there that young people that grow up in our churches that know God, that are raised in Christian homes, they walk away. Many, not all, but many do because they get away, they get out on their own, they begin to hear things that aren't true. They forget their creator in the days of their youth and they walk away. Don't let that happen in your life. Pull up alongside, listen to those that are older. And I wanna encourage those that are older to listen to the younger. It goes both ways. I have two desires as a pastor here at CBC. Number one, well, more than two, but these are two related to age. Number one, I wanna see the generation gap bridge with love and common purpose. There is a gap there. We can't ignore it, it is there. We think differently, we look at the world differently, those that are older, those that are younger. It it just is what it is, and that's okay. But I wanna bridge that with communication, with common purpose, with love and understanding. I love the idea that we're intergenerational here at CBC and I wanna foster that and even grow that more. That across the generations we can be about the same thing. 
We can have that common purpose and love for each other. And we can listen to each other. We might not agree. That's okay. But as long as we agree on the things that are essential and core to our faith, that's what's important. We can, we can disagree on the minor things, quite honestly, and that's okay. Maybe I can learn some things from people that I disagree with, and, that, and it's good. So number one, let's bridge that generation gap. Number two, I wanna see stereotypes about generations just wiped out and brought down. I hear people say things that are harmful and hurtful about other generations. Those millennials, blah, 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 blah. Those baby boomers, blah, 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 blah. Those Gen Xers. And it's very derogatory and it's very negative and it does no good. I, I wanna just get rid of that and say, you know what, let's treat people as people. Let's see beyond these labels that we wanna put on them and let's see the value in all the generations that God has brought together for his purposes. We are a family here at CBC. Here's our mission statement. We are a family of believers, right? It's right up front, it's what we do when we come in the door. We are seeking to glorify God, inviting others to grow with us in an abundant relationship with Jesus Christ through an understanding of grace and truth. We're a family of believers. Let's be the family of believers, young and old together. One of the best ways we can be a family, one of the best ways we can remember God's faithfulness, one of the best ways we, we can unite together, one of the best ways we can build our faith is to partake in communion. And I'm gonna ask Brother Ron to come and lead us in that right now.